there, there are all kinds of, of questions that I think will we'll need to get answered. But yes, they came out Friday night and provided the kind of jolt to this race that I didn't think was, was left out there. For the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm Lucille Sherman. This is the special 2020 elections edition of Domecast. We're taking a break from our usual programming this week to spotlight the North Carolina U.S. Senate race, a battle between Republican U.S. Senator Tom Tillis and Democrat Cal Cunningham. We're going to talk with a reporter on the front lines of all of this to understand what in the world happened Friday night when Tillis announced his COVID-19 diagnosis and Cunningham's campaign confirmed leaked sexts were in fact real. After the break, we'll hear from Brian Murphy, the News and Observer's DC correspondent. Hello? Hey. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Uh, It's been a heck of a week, or I guess like a heck of a past few days, hasn't it? It has. It's been about a whole year crammed into like two days. Totally. So we're going to talk about the U.S. Senate race, which you have been covering pretty closely. And first, I want to set the stage with what's the significance of this Senate race? Why are Democrats across the country counting on Cal Cunningham to beat his challenger, incumbent Republican Senator Tom Tillis, in their bid for the Senate? Well, I mean, by all accounts, the whoever controls the Senate may come down to whoever wins this race. Republicans currently hold 53 seats in the United States Senate. And so Democrats need to net at least three seats if Joe Biden is elected president and four seats if Donald Trump is reelected president. And it, and it appears that Republicans are going to win back a seat in Alabama that Doug Jones won by defeating Roy Moore. He d- doesn't have the advantage of running against Roy Moore again. So Republicans are likely to claim that seat. So they've got to find at least four seats in the U.S. somewhere. They look like they have a very good chance of taking Colorado and Arizona Maine looks like another one that could go the Democrats' way. And so now suddenly you're down to you got to find that fourth seat somewhere. And and that somewhere was looking like North Carolina. Democrats are also contesting and trying to unseat Republican incumbents in Iowa, in Montana, uh, in South Carolina, where, where Jamie Harrison has given Lindsey Graham a heck of a run. But the easiest path to getting to, to 50 for Democrats is through North Carolina. And it looked like, I think before this weekend, I would have told you that Cal Cunningham was leading was certainly in the lead and looked like he was going to possibly win that seat. Yeah, it looked like he had it in the bag as of a few days ago. But that's October for you. So who is Tom Tillis? He's been a pretty prominent person in North Carolina politics for a while. Sure. I mean, Tom Tillis served as Speaker of the House in in North Carolina. If you, if you listen to any of his campaign ads or, or any of his speeches, he grew up in a trailer park, moved around the Southeast didn't get his college degree until he was 36, worked at IBM, worked his way up, um, and then ran for for town council, at least as the story goes, ran for town council because he wanted a bike path put in and felt like he needed to be on the board to, to get that done. And then he got elected to the state house in North Carolina and quickly moved up to be speaker. I mean, Republicans hadn't been in the majority in North Carolina's state house in, in like 100 years. And when they won the control of the house in 2010, Tillis got elected largely because, I mean, I, I wasn't covering it at the time, but apparently he he spent a lot of time as a state house rep going around and campaigning for other Republicans. And so when it came time to elect a speaker, 
he had a lot of favors that he was able to call in and a lot of members of the caucus felt that he, he would do a good job leading him. His leadership in the House, I mean, is, is a partisan divide. Republicans say he got the budget in order, turned the economy around, saved North Carolina's you know economic future. Democrats, you know, point to some of the cuts that he made, whether it's the unemployment insurance. They say he cut school funding, and so that that's a matter of sort of what what side of the aisle you fall down on. Democrats will also complain about some of the gerrymandering what they call voter suppression that went on when Senator Tillis was then Speaker of the House. And then in 2014, he beat a crowded field of Republican challengers to then Senator Kay Hagan, the, the late senator now. And throughout that campaign, throughout 2014, it, it appeared that Kay Hagan was going to win that race. She was the incumbent. She made it much, she made that much of that race a referendum on what Tillis had done to school funding. And then late in that race, some national events sort of overtook what was happening in North Carolina. And he was able to turn the focus to Ebola, to some of the decisions that were being made with ISIS and really nationalized it. Kay Hagan was hit for having skipped a meeting on ISIS while in the Senate. And Tillis likes to tell the story, and and again, I don't have access to the polls, but that he never led any poll in that race until election day. He won by less than 50,000 votes and is now the junior senator from North Carolina and has been in the Senate for seven years. So, so that's a little bit of background. I don't want to talk too much. No, that's really helpful. I was reading some old stories today, and one of the stories that came across was from 2010 or 2011 when Tillis was House Speaker, and they sort of started, Republicans sort of started their efforts to change voter ID law. No, we're still living. I mean, the, the districts have obviously been redrawn several times, and, and voter ID cases have been in the courts and tossed out and put on the ballot as a constitutional amendment and tossed out. So a lot of the things that Tillis put into place are still being litigated today. Yeah. The particular story I read was about a federal appeals panel striking down one of the voter ID laws saying it targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. And if I'm right, he would have been a part of sort of that movement to pass that when he was in the legislature. Yeah, that, and that line has come up. I'm not sure when it was issued. I think that case may have been issued sometime around the middle of the middle of the decade. That line, Democrats continue to use it against Republicans and any Republican that was involved in it. I believe that line came up in one of the Cunningham Tillis debates that that you went after African Americans with with near surgical precision. That line from a judge has has made its way into North Carolina's sort of political lexicon. Yeah. Okay, now who is Cal Cunningham? He doesn't seem to have as much prominence in the last decade or so of North Carolina politics, but where what's his background? Where does he come from? Yeah, he, he comes from Lexington, North Carolina, which is home to some delicious barbecue. I've never been there, but I really want to get there. Went to, went to Chapel Hill, got a law degree. He was in the state Senate, one of the youngest people to join the state Senate. He won that in 2000. And only served one term. His uh, his district got redistricted, and he joined the U.S. Army Reserves right after 9/11. And so he's kind of you know he, he served two tours of duty, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. He won a Bronze Star for his work as a military prosecutor over there. He started a business in Raleigh, or at least helped start a business, a, a waste zero, kind of a, a waste management business. He is married, has two children. He ran for the U.S. Senate in 2010 but lost in the primary to Elaine Marshall, 
and lost in the primary and then was able to force a runoff but lost in the runoff as well. So, you know, the Tillis campaign has tried to tried to call him, you know, someone who's been running for office ever since he was a kid. I, I'm not sure how fair that is, but he certainly it's not the first time that he's run for the U.S. Senate. Hmm. So now let's jump to the past couple of days of events. First, in thinking about sort of what's happened in the last few days, one of the first things that came to mind is the barbecue scandal, (laughs) which I think really kicked off the craziness of this week. Can you explain sort of what happened in that case? Sure. As I just mentioned, you know, uh, Cal Cunningham is from Lexington, which is known for its barbecue, sort of the Western style barbecue of North Carolina as opposed to the Eastern style. But Cal Cunningham, for some reason, posted a photo of himself standing in front of a grill that we learned subsequently had hamburgers and hot dogs on it, wearing an apron that said he was a barbecue ambassador and put out a tweet that said, there's only one thing. I I can't remember the exact wording of the tweet, but it was a barbecue-related tweet. You know, North Carolinians love their barbecue, love to argue about their barbecue, and they know that hamburgers and hot dogs is is grilling out and not barbecue. Because barbecue is, is, you know, when you slow roast a pig or you cook something low and slow for many, many hours. So usually pork. I thought Drew Jackson wrote an amazing story about it. If only we were still talking about things as funny and as quaint as as barbecue and, and getting barbecue wrong. Yeah, what's funny about that is I thought that was surely the biggest scandal that would happen this week. Little did we know. So then Thursday night, a couple days later, we have their third and final debate. Cunningham and Tillis face off. We wrote a couple stories. We fact-checked them. Was there anything significant in your mind that came out of that debate or anything that stands out to you? You know, not really. I think that there were three debates in this in in quick succession. The first debate, you know, Cunningham made some news by saying he'd be hesitant to take a vaccine if it was developed before the end of the year. That That's probably the most memorable thing that came out of any of the debates. The last debate, I, I think, will be known as sort of the rubber stamp debate. Each candidate accused the other one of being a rubber stamp for their party's interests, uh, that you know, Tillis would vote along with Mitch McConnell and, and President Trump, and that in Cunningham's case, he would vote along with Chuck Schumer and, and President Biden if, if it is a President Biden. Probably the, the biggest news that came out of Thursday was that Cunningham raised $28 million in three months. That's just a staggering amount of money. In the three months previous to that, Cunningham had raised $7 million, which was a record. That had been a record for any North Carolina U.S. Senate race in any quarter. The third quarter is always better than the second quarter, but his second quarter was better than anybody's previous quarter at any time in North Carolina history. And then he blew that out of the water by nearly four times in the third quarter of this year. And so, you know, after Thursday night, I thought this this race has been pretty stable. Cunningham's had a lead, consistent lead throughout the summer. He just raked in $28 million. You know, Senate Republicans are having to defend a lot of seats. How much money is going to be left for Tillis? I thought the race had sort of, you know, we had the parameters of the race by the end of Thursday, and it was that Cunningham was going to be able to spend his way to the finish line. It it might not have been enough, but he was going to be able to spend his way to the finish line. One more thing on the money aspect that I want to know is a lot of that money came in right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, sort of Democrats rallying around swing states. And I think it was something like $6 ish that he raked in in the days following Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, which that's crazy knowing that the previous quarter, his 
he raised seven million. Yeah, even if you, even if you say he raised six million or give him ten million in the period after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that's still eighteen million that he raised outside of that. And so Democrats, national Democrats, are very very motivated to help flip the Senate. And obviously Cunningham's race has been targeted for a long time. Okay, so after the debate, in the wee hours of Friday morning, we find out. President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump have coronavirus, which I don't know about you, but then I'm like, this is the big news of the week. This is it. And then Friday, I can't remember the chronological order of events, but I think at some point in the afternoon, sort of a a story came out about Cal Cunningham. Was that the next thing that came in sort of the sequence of events in your mind? Just a little correction. The the debate ended, and almost immediately after the debate ended, I I was alerted to a story from an outlet called National File that posted what looked like, quite frankly, which looked like juvenile text messages. I mean, they look almost fake text messages between what was purported to be Cal Cunningham and a woman that is that's not his wife. I looked at the text messages, some of the language just didn't seem like they, they looked fake. And I'm not, I wasn't denigrating the outlet, but I just thought, man, there's no way these text messages are real. But I did my due diligence. I made some calls, you know, then, as you said, in the wee hours of Friday morning, Trump, you know, was had coronavirus and that sort of blew everything out of the water. And so as we got into Friday, I, I, w- I wrote several other stories about other things, but was making calls on on these text messages, just trying to find out, like, th- this outlet had named the, the other woman, trying to find out if Cal Cunningham knew this woman in any way, sort of just doing the things that reporters do while working on some other stories. Yeah, so then Friday evening, we find out Tillis has coronavirus. This was after five Friday evening. Where do you think he contracted coronavirus or do you have any suspicions about how he got it? Yeah, you know, in, in Friday afternoon, Trump gets whisked away to Walter Reed Hospital, which is a dramatic scene. The president of the United States is, is having to go to the hospital for coronavirus. And then shortly after that, Tom Tillis announced that he had tested positive. I, you know, I, there's no way to know where anybody gets coronavirus, but... There was a White House event to, for the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to be the next Supreme Court justice. Tom Tillis attended. At least eight people, to my knowledge at this point, who attended that event have come down with coronavirus. It, again, it's impossible to know that that is where it happened, but it certainly seems like a super spreader event at this point. It, it lines up with the timing of three or four days later, all these people start experiencing symptoms and start testing positive. The event was outside in the Rose Garden. The one that we all saw on television was outside at the, in the Rose Garden. Tom Tillis was wearing a mask most of that time, um, at least according to the television cameras that we could see. But previous to that, there were, there were indoor events at the White House. From the pictures that I've seen, very few people were wearing masks. Senator Tillis was photographed with Amy Coney Barrett's child, one of them, and he was not wearing a mask at that time. I, I'm not, you know, I don't have any inside knowledge as to how long he wore a mask, how long he didn't wear a mask, only to say it was a long event, a lot of people close together, not everybody was wearing masks the entire time, and it does appear that that event has at least triggered an outbreak among the high-ranking high-ranking GOP officials who were there. Yeah, and then the final sort of wrap-up event in the in that Friday, lovely Friday evening, was that Cal Cunningham's campaign confirmed to you that those text messages were indeed real. And that story broke around midnight, I think, on Friday night, right? 
Yeah, it, it broke. I, I probably got word in the 10 o'clock hour that those text messages were real and that Cal Cunningham released a statement that did not address the text messages, but addressed his failings to his family and to his wife and to others. And crucially, and this point doesn't get made enough, made no reference to dropping out of the race. You know, it plans to remain in the race. Certainly you can you can point to the timing after Trump has been taken to Walter Reed, after Senator Tillis has been announced that he has coronavirus, 10.30 on a Friday night heading into the weekend. If you're trying to bury news, that, that's a pretty good time to try to bury it. But, you know, that being said, unlike others who've been caught in these kind of scandals, you know, Cunningham is trying the honest approach. There are still many, I'm not excusing it in any way. There are many, many, many questions that I have, that others have, that have not been answered by Cunningham or the Cunningham campaign at this point about how long he's known this woman, uh, how long this relationship, and I, and I don't want to characterize it as anything more than a, a relationship at this point, was going on. There, there are all kinds of, of questions that I think will we'll need to get answered. But yes, they came out Friday night and provided the kind of jolt to this race that I, I didn't think was, was left out there. So... I'm kind of wondering what happens next. We have the incumbent has coronavirus and will likely be quarantining for two weeks. We have his Democratic challenger with some kind of scandal of his own. What happens now, I guess? It's a great question, and it's what I'm probably going to spend the next you know three days, four days, until the next giant story breaks, trying to figure out a couple things. One... Over 340,000 North Carolinians have already voted in this race. And, and th- those are just the numbers through Saturday. I-, I imagine more people cast their ballots before Friday that just haven't been counted. And so they're going to have cast their ballots before they knew that Senator Tillis got coronavirus, before they knew that Cal Cunningham was involved in this, in this scam. So those votes can't be changed. Now, obviously, there's, there's a lot of votes out there that, that still can be changed. But how many will be changed? I mean, I think we've seen the polling particularly at the presidential level, people are very locked in to who they're going to vote for. When you get to the Senate race, there has been steady 10 to 13% undecided or other voting for some of the other candidates that are in this race. Are those people persuadable? I mean, if if, 10, if 8 of 8% go to Senator Tillis, then his trailing in the polls goes away. His deficit goes away. So how many of those people are persuadable at this point? I mean, I've I've already seen some of the blowback of this is a private matter between two consenting adults. You know, why should we care? And and people pushing and saying that, that you know, Tillis's disregard of coronavirus safety procedures is a far worse scandal. You've certainly seen people the other way say that, you know, compare this to John Edwards and, and some other cases where North Carolina Democrats have gotten in trouble and say you, can, you can't trust him. You know, people will point to, to President Trump and some of his outside behavior, outlandish behavior, you know, some would say, and say that these things don't matter anymore. I think the difference and one thing to consider is that Cal Cunningham has sort of run his campaign as an all-American boy next door. Small town guy from North Carolina, joined the military after 9-11, has promised to go to Washington and crack down on corruption, said one of the problems with the vaccine is the corrupting influence that people have had. I mean, he's, he was a military prosecutor. I mean, he talks about this stuff all the time, that he's had this call to service, and that's what's motivated him throughout his life. I'm not saying that that can't go hand in hand with, with perhaps having an extramarital affair, although we, we don't know that for sure. Text messages do, do lean in that direction. 
I, I think when you build your your campaign around character, then this then something like this hurts a little more than if you're President Trump and you build your campaign around I'm the biggest baddest person on the planet. To me, to me, it may have more of an effect than we think, but I'm not a political pundit, and and it could have no effect. We, we'll see. Yeah, it's hard to say. We're still a, we're a month out exactly from the election, so I guess we'll see. My last question for you is, if I'm a voter just now tuning into this race, which would be very overwhelming, what do I need to know about this race? Or what do you think voters in general need to know about this race? You know, I think it's a, there's one other big event that could turn this race. And that is the Amy Coney Barrett. It's her confirmation hearings. Senator Tillis is on the Senate Judiciary Committee, will be a big part of those hearings. Those hearings will attract an enormous audience. As Republicans try to try to push through her nomination and confirmation before the election, I hesitate at this point to say that nothing else is going to be bigger than that because who knows what's going to happen in the next thirty days. I mean, I, I think this race, uh, from, from a lot of my reporting, was going to be decided by suburban women who have largely, it appears, turned against the president. There may be time for the president to win them back, but it, it appears in a lot of polling that suburban women college-educated suburban women in some cases, have kind of turned against the president. And I think that was had, had a, a possibility of dragging down Tillis, and not only Tillis, but other Republican Senate candidates in races across the country. Does Cal Cunningham's indiscretions, you know, we'll put it at that, does that have an effect with these women who may have decided they weren't going to vote for President Trump's party? And now do they come back to Senator Tillis? Do they, do they split their ticket? Do they vote do they vote Biden Tillis? We, we've talked a lot throughout the campaign about the possibility of, of Trump Cunningham voters, voters who just for whatever reason, Republican voters who don't trust Tom Tillis. There's been some of that. Maybe they don't like him from his time as Speaker of the House. Maybe they're not happy with some of the things he's done, but his number in Congress, but his numbers have consistently been a few points behind President Trump's. I wonder, and, and this is pure speculation, but could, could we get Biden, uh, Biden Tillis voters, people who these suburban women that I talked about who maybe are disgusted with President Trump and his behavior and decide to vote for Joe Biden, but who decide that this episode, these indiscretions from from Cal Cunningham are too much for them to vote for him. And so they vote for for Tillis. The, the thought of a Biden Tillis voter seemed far fetched a couple of days ago. But you do wonder if there are people who are turned off by behavior who decide not to vote for Trump and then conversely decide not to vote for Cunningham. Again, a, a not a political pundit, just throwing out a lot of the possibilities that are out there. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting is that we may not know the results of this race on election night. Yeah, let me pull, I'm going to push back a little bit on that notion for, for two reasons. One, if we don't know on election night, that's okay. Our system is made to be able to count votes that come in postmarked before the election, but, but come in a couple of days after Second, all these absentee ballots that are, are in before November 2nd or on November 2nd, the day before the election, will be counted on, on November 3rd, election night. Already we have 300,000, 340,000 of those ballots. I imagine there's been over a million people who have requested absentee ballots. If that number gets up to seven, 800,000 of those ballots are in by election night, then we're gonna, we should have a pretty good idea of who won. Just saying that I think there is a pretty decent chance we'll have a good idea of what the race looks like on election night. We may not be able to declare a winner, but I think we'll be able to do a lot of math and say, 
there's 100,000 absentee ballots out. This candidate is winning by 75,000 or whatever the case may be. I think we'll be able to give readers and listeners and viewers a pretty good sense of what's happened uh, by the end of election night. And for your sake and mine, I hope we have a good idea of what's happening on election night. Thanks so much for your time, Brian. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. We'll be right back after this quick break. It's Monday, October 5th. There are 30 days until the general election. The deadline to register to vote in North Carolina is October 9th in four days. And we'll pick up with our regular programming next week, spotlighting various state legislative races in North Carolina. See you next week.